Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Dr. Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, joins us to discuss the latest global security survey released at the Halifax International Security Forum. But first, joining us is Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, to give us a sense of where we are budgetarily and what to expect next week when lawmakers return to town after Thanksgiving. A quick programming note. Uh, After today's program, we're going to be taking a break, but we will pick up on Sunday with our regular business roundtable. Michael, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be back. Uh, It's uh, great having you back on. I'm sorry we don't have a full roundtable, but we're doing a light and lively program today because I think pretty much uh, all of America is already fully into Thanksgiving mode after two years of being separated, right? More people coming back, more people buying turkeys. And unfortunately, some people are finding some of these basic uh, staples a a little hard to get. Uh, Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall and general atomic aeronautical systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Obviously, a lot going on. The president signed into law the $1.2 trillion infrastructure measure. Democrats continue to uh, debate the $1.85 trillion uh, social package that the president has put forward, although it remains very unclear whether or not Democrats are actually going to get any credit for this, uh, given some polling and reports that we're seeing uh, that um, you know, Republicans like what's what's in some of these measures, but actually may not vote for Democrats, right? So Democrats may not be rewarded and in fact could be punished because of the details of some of this legislation. Let's first talk about infrastructure. Where do we stand on infrastructure as well as the wider spending package and when we're likely to see it uh, approved because Democrats are convinced that once they do this, victory in 22 is assured. Uh, yeah, well, I, I mentioned uh, several episodes ago that Nancy Pelosi should have a monument directed to her if she succeeds in getting the bipartisan infrastructure bill passed and the Build Back Better uh, bill passed. And she did. Uh, and this was really all her. And it was uh, an incredible Herculean uh, effort. Uh, first, two weeks ago, she rolled the progressives by getting the bipartisan infrastructure bill passed when they had insisted that both the BBB and the BIF be voted on together. She was able to break the two apart, get that passed. Uh, It did pass, though, with 13 Republican votes, and uh, that's caused quite some consternation within the Republican conference uh, because six Democrats did vote against it, and that would have been enough to tank the bill. And then a week later, uh, she succeeded in getting the Build Back Better Act uh, passed through Congress, despite the fact that the CBO score, which the moderates were waiting for, came out and indicated that the, the package was not fully paid for. So that was an incredible uh, success, I think, for, for Pelosi and the House Democrats. But now it goes over to the Senate and really has an uncertain fate over there because Manchin, uh, for one, has made clear that he is not going to vote to pass that version of the bill because it contains things in there like paid and family medical leave, which he does not support. And there are many other senators have lots of issues with that bill. Senator Schumer would like to take this bill up the second week of December. Uh, I think it's going to be very difficult, uh, especially now the Senate is supposed to recess Uh, for the year at the end of that week. Nobody believes that the House or Senate are going to recess anywhere close to that. And the Democrats have set actually a new deadline for themselves of Christmas to get the bipartisan infrastructure bill, uh, the the Build Back Better plan uh, passed. And that's a you know, all the deadlines they've set for themselves in the past, they've not been able to meet. And this is going to be one that's going to be very difficult for them to meet as well. Um, And uh, do you think that this is going to be 
a road to retaining power uh, as Democrats believe it will be, or uh, is this going to be somewhat more problematic? Right. I mean, a lot of elements of these uh, of the of uh, Build Back Better, uh, for example, uh, you know, universal pre-K and a whole bunch of other measures that help with childcare poll well nationwide, whereas some other elements will maybe poll less well. What's what's your sense, and what are members telling you about how this is going to play out? I know moderate members are worried to say the least. Yes, no, I think it's an excellent point. And they, they are. And I've talked to several of them. And, uh, you know, and, and, and remember, the House is going to have to vote on this twice. So the House will have voted on the version they passed last week. And then if the Senate is successful in passing something, the House is going to have to vote on that again, too. So in many cases, they, they took a vote on something they didn't have to take a vote on, which will prove to be controversial back home, especially as they start peeling back the layer of a bill that's thousands of pages long. And the polling is showing uh, that uh, as, as a whole, that this bill is not very popular and there's a lot of concerns that it's going to add to inflation, especially since it doesn't seem that it's completely paid for. And as people start to pick apart provisions of the bill, uh, there's going to be more and more things that I think people are unhappy with, even though uh, there are things there that make people's lives better. The fact that you mentioned universal pre-K, child care, these are things that also are not means tested and are going to cost more money than they really should be because certain people really shouldn't be eligible for those benefits. But uh, I, I do think that uh, this is going to be something that, that Republicans will hang around Democrats next in races that are going to be competitive in 2022. And there are a lot of races that are going to be competitive in 2022. I mean, the, the Republicans see a lot of potential pickup opportunities. Uh, and and of course, right. I mean, there is a little bit of gerrymandering, you know, Kel Supreme right. I mean, there's a little bit of gerrymandering uh, that's also going on that's going to help Republicans uh, structurally uh, throughout this process. We're in the midst of just an interminable National Defense Authorization Act cycle. Uh, there are debt ceiling discussions. Gordon Adams, uh, one of our regulars, uh, Dr. Adams, uh, joined us, um, you know, and, and has his position has been that actually Treasury can do a whole bunch of things uh, to stretch, you know, stretch out the deadline until January, uh, which does give folks a little bit more uh, maneuvering room. Wall Street uh, did uh, reward the administration for at least retaining Jerome Powell as chairman of the Fed. There was a little bit of concern with uh, Lyle Brainard uh, now being the vice uh, chair. But talk to us a little bit about where we stand with NDAA and debt ceiling. Uh, and, and then we can go to appropriations and CR, which is a separate train wreck. Yes, it is. So, uh, so NDAA. Um, <laughs> I, 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 hate, I hate to say that, right? But uh, you got to call it like you see it. So. Right. And, you know, there's a lot for Congress to do in the, in the coming weeks and not a lot of time uh, to get it done. So uh, NDAA, which has lingered in the Senate for a while, finally uh, started moving uh, you know, prior to the Thanksgiving break. Uh, they will take it up again next week when they get back. They need anywhere from two to four days to wrap it up, depending on uh, how many amendments they decide they're going to consider. Uh, from what I understand now, they're going to limit that even more. There's not going to be another manager's package. And the goal will be to get NDA passed in the Senate next week. However, they still need time to conference the bill and then vote on the final conference report. And the fact that BBB will be on the floor in the Senate will suck a lot of the oxygen out of the room on that one. So they are. it is a race against time, but I do believe that they will be able to get it done. However, uh, you did mention debt ceiling earlier. Um, now, that, you know, uh, the deadline the Hill is looking at is from what they've been told by Secretary Yellen is December 15th. And from what I understand, you know, Schumer and McConnell are engaging in discussions. You know, the, the Republicans really want the Democrats to tack this into the reconciliation package. That is not going to happen. Uh, Democrats are looking for a bipartisan solution. I, can't, I just don't know what that's going to be. But uh, there is a rumor, a serious rumor, about tacking the debt ceiling into the NDAA. Right? And if that's the case... Uh, that will give that could give 
many Republicans excuse to vote against the NDAA, especially in the House. Uh, and they will need Republican votes to help pass the NDAA because there are a lot of Democrats that do, will not support the NDAA. So that is a, a late breaking thing that just, just popped up. But I've heard that rumor from several sources. And uh, that is definitely a concern. But I think at the end of the day, uh, 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 it's unlikely they will put the debt ceiling on the NDAA. But that is something that is being seriously considered right now. There's no precedent for that. Why, what, what, what problem is this trying to solve rather than create a new problem? Well, you know, we're in uncharted. Right. Trip. I mean, some things, right. you know, you, you can you can you can position anything as a good idea, but sometimes bad ideas are just bad ideas. Right. This kind of falls more in the latter than the former. I agree. And and this is something that is a Senate idea, which I think is probably a Schumer idea. But as we saw, one of the reasons that NDAA was moving so slowly in the Senate was that Schumer was trying to tack on the USICA bill, which was his China bill onto the NDAA. And that was stopping it because. Many people in the House were opposed to that. Many Republicans in the Senate were opposed to that. So Pelosi, to her credit, stepped in and got Schumer to agree to take Yusika off the NDAA and then agree uh, to conference that bill separately. But, you know, it's the end of the year and people are looking for what vehicle is going to move and become law. NDAA is going to become law. It's going to move. So people are looking at what things can we tack on to it to also make them become law as well. So it's, it's, it's a scramble like this at the end of the year, depending on what vehicles are moving. Good, good luck with that, and, uh, and, and certainly we'll be able to talk a lot about it. Um, let's talk about appropriations and the continuing resolution. Odds appear to be changing. There are folks who are beginning, right? I mean, we heard from Byron Callen uh, earlier this week, uh, you know, and, and worries rising that we might be actually headed to a full year uh, CR. Your sense on where we are on appropriations and where we are on CR. And I, I feel at this point I need to apologize to our audience, right? I mean, because there's a sameness to these questions, which which just makes me feel highly self-conscious, but alas, that's sort of where we are. So again, I apologize to the audience for having to ask this, but unfortunately we have to ask this because lawmakers aren't doing their jobs. Go ahead. I agree. It's just, it's just the same thing every year. Uh, and, you know, except for, except for years where we end up getting a two-year budget deal, which we don't really have in place right now. But, you know, so, you know, the clock is running. I mean, we are, um, you know, less than a week and a half away from uh, a government shutdown if another CR is not is not passed. Um, or an appropriations bill, which is not going to be passed by, by next Friday. Now, there are several dates being talked about for another CR. One is December 17th. The other is taking a CR into February. Another is taking the CR into March. I think it's very unlikely at this point that they will pass the CR to December 17th uh, because there's no way they can have all the appropriations bills ready to go and pass by then. They haven't even agreed uh, to a top line. And, that, and that's a real sticking point for Republicans because the top line right now for probes looks to be around $1.5 trillion. And that includes a 13% increase in non-defense domestic discretionary spending and a 5% increase probably for a defense, which the Republicans feel is too much of an imbalance. But then they say but the imbalance is even greater if you take into consideration um, the reconciliation package that passed earlier this year of $1.9 trillion, uh, and then the bipartisan infrastructure package of $1.2 trillion, and now a BBB of a possible $1.75 trillion. So the imbalance is way too great between the two. The Republicans want to see the non-defense domestic discretionary number uh, cut back, uh, and they want the parameters to, of a negotiation agreed to before they sit down and negotiate. So they're not even negotiating at this point, which is why there's no way uh, they can have anything done by the 17th. So we definitely have a CR into next year. The question is, is it going to go into February or is it going to go into March? Now, as you pointed out, there is a lot of talk about a one-year CRing for a year. I, I, we, we hear that a lot. I don't think we're going to get there. I hope we don't get there. I think the, the message that, that resonates with folks on the Hill is that if we do do that, China wins. You know, if, if, if this hypersonic weapons test was a Sputnik moment, then we are not going to make any progress 
in research on hypersonic weapons, for example, if we see off another year. So uh, hopefully uh, we will be able to get to good, but it probably won't be until sometime next year. And, and if we do see our into February, March, we have to be dealing with the FY23 budget at the same time uh, as we're dealing with this, because that budget will come over in early February. Nothing is easier than dealing with uh, two, two budgets uh, simultaneously. Let me ask you uh, one last uh, quick question, right? Um, the administration has been briefing out uh, with a, a select circle, uh, the national, def- you know, where they're headed on the national uh, defense strategy and national security uh, strategy. What are you hearing from lawmakers about it, right? I've, I've talked to a couple of folks who, who seem somewhat underwhelmed, although I think everybody is uh, is being very, very careful not to violate the rules of engagement on this, right? I mean, so there are those who've been briefed who are being very, very uh, cautious in what they say uh, publicly uh, about it. But what's what's the feedback you're getting, right? Because we, we're, we've been told boy, these documents really are going to set up some of those big muscle movements for the future. We have to make change. We have to make it quickly. I was at Halifax. You know, I asked uh, Chris Coons and uh, Mark Risch uh, whether they're moving fast enough. The answer was no. Um, uh, I, I think uh, Senator Coons was uh, his amusing self when he said, I don't think you're going to like the answer, but no. <laughs> it's a yeah. short answer uh, that we're not moving fast enough. From from your standpoint, what are members telling you about where the administration is and whether all of these strategies, whether the NDS, the national security strategy, the Indo-Pacific strategy, the cyber strategy, the space strategy, or the cyber strategy, are you getting any feedback uh, given all of these are going to debut early next year? Uh, you know, not on the micro level on those strategies individually per se, but more on the macro level. There is you know, concern that we're kind of a little schizophrenic with our strategy. I mean, we seem to be repeating history again, where with the Obama administration wanted this pivot to Asia. And now we're saying, well, we're pivoting or you know, focusing more on China, all right? Pretty much the same thing. And so we're withdrawing from the Middle East. We saw, you know, taking, for example, pulling our troops out of Afghanistan, but that's throughout the Middle East. So also, you know, I think I hear a lot of Republicans complain that, you know, well, that we need to make sure we maintain our close relationship with our allies in those regions and make sure we provide them with the weapons and the training and everything they need to be able to burden share with us uh, on this. And it doesn't seem that we seem to be doing a lot of that. And our strategy, you know, is really gotta be, what is it we wanna do? And what's our force structure gonna be? We haven't really had a real strategy since the Bush 41 administration, where we had the base force of 1.6 million uh, designed to fight two major regional conflicts simultaneously. Uh, since then, right. it's really been very ad hoc. So I think that there is a thirst to have one. And I think it'd be very hard to get consensus around it because I think you see the Republicans really kind of bifurcated on that. I mean, there's been some alarming interviews with, uh, you know, on, on Fox News, for example, interviewing some Republicans upset that we're providing aid to Ukraine. And we're not providing our troops to them, but we're providing aid to them. And people questioning why we should be doing that. Well, if we're questioning that, if we're questioning aiding countries uh, uh, against the Russians on the side of freedom, then our whole strategy is, is going to be questioned. So it, it's, it's very concerning. And I think the administration needs to take a strong leadership role and engage the national security leaders on the Hill in this. Uh, and, and very briefly, and I, and, I, and I don't want to put you in a position because you uh, represent uh, countries uh, in, in the Gulf uh, as well, uh, but there is a, a new arms export uh, uh, approach that the administration is looking at that takes greater consideration, that takes human rights into greater consideration on these. Obviously, that's been an issue both with Saudi Arabia and with the United Arab Emirates in the wake of not just Yemen, but uh, the Khashoggi affair. 
Um, any any sense where the administration is going to fall on that? Because again, it's a very similar debate, Michael, right? The United States has an obligation to its allies and partners and has to be pragmatic. On the other hand, the United States, right, if it, if it talks about being a beacon for democracy and freedom and human rights, it, it should put its money where its mouth is, or at least it should put its legislation where its mouth is. You know, any any sense on where the arms export, um, what what the outcome is going to be on that? Because there is some concern that it will dramatically curtail sales, thereby opening up opportunities, for example, for the Russians and the Chinese, who were kind of all over uh, the Dubai Air Show. Yes. Uh, look, obviously, without mentioning any of my specific clients, right, either foreign governments or um, defense contractors, I mean, I, I'm hearing about it really a lot from my contractors who are concerned about this. And it is a, a legitimate concern because, um, as you mentioned, the Russians and Chinese are all over the air shows and they um, are, you know, will sell in many cases, uh, countries with weapon systems that are even more sophisticated than we're willing to sell. Because, for example, even in the Middle East, we, we are, we're concerned about Israel's QME, where the Russians and the Chinese are not you know, concerned about that. So uh, I, I, I think there's a lot of concern about that. There's also, been, as you know, a big focus on, on Capitol Hill among the Democrats about human rights as part of this policy. But I think at the end of the day, human rights is obviously critically important, but we have to think about what's in the best interest of the United States. Right. And, you know, we I'm not saying we should do business with unsavory characters, but, you know, it's how we won the Cold War. You know, we were uh, working with Jonas Savimbi in Angola. We were working with Marcos in the Philippines. And we, you know, we needed friends and we need friends today more than ever, because I think what's the difference now is that we see the Russians and the Chinese collaborating against us. And we we see them now putting a joint helicopter program together. Uh, and this is one of the many things that they're doing together to make our life more difficult. And we need to do everything in our power to figure out how to get to yes, not to get to no. So uh, what you're asking is a lot all my defense contractors are asking about, and we just really don't know, but there's a serious concern. Michael, hope you and yours have a terrific uh, Thanksgiving uh, and look forward to having you back on again next week. In the meantime, uh, have a great holiday and all the very best. Thank you. You too. And a word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage, and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All-Domain Command and Control. Last weekend, we were in Halifax, Nova Scotia for the annual Halifax International Security Forum, one of the world's leading gatherings of security, diplomatic, uh, economic, as well as civil society leaders. There, we connected with Dr. Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, uh, one of the world's leading polling and public affairs firms uh, that annually conducts an important global survey of security trends that coincides with the Halifax Forum. Here's our conversation with Daryl Bricker. And it is my honor to welcome back to the program Dr. Daryl Bricker, who is the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, one of the world's leading public affairs and polling institutions. Daryl, it is terrific seeing you after two years live and in person. Well, we've been able to do this by phone or by other means, but we haven't been able to see each other face to face, and it is really good to see you, Vardo. Uh, and, uh, and, and you're looking well indeed, and, and it's terrific to be back here in Halifax, terrific to be back here in Canada and at this great event, uh, which, which is just, you know, uh, it's, it's a great needle-setting event every year, and hopefully uh, pandemic and other things permitting, we'll be able to gather on a regular one-year uh, basis again. Uh, talk to us a little bit, right, uh, coinciding with every single Halifax Security Forum, uh, there is uh, a security poll uh, 
uh, of global uh, attitudes towards the United States democracy, the, the whole shoot and match China. Talk to us a little bit about the conclusions from this year's poll. So we interviewed uh, 22,000 people in 28 countries every year for the Halifax Security Forum. Actually, that number's risen. I think this is the most we've, we've ever interviewed. And we looked at a, a variety of things, everything from what people are thinking about COVID through to what their priorities are, what they think the threats are facing the world. And also we asked them about potential for expanding some global democratic institutions and what they thought about it. So a lot of interesting data came back from the survey. Uh, and uh, let's uh, walk, right? I mean, you mentioned uh, COVID. Uh, how has COVID changed uh, the security picture? You know, China continues to loom large in the minds of many is conjoined with uh, the source of the pandemic and Beijing's actions, for example, we heard in one of the several of the panel discussions, uh, you know, nations not liking, uh, you know, uh, being dependent on China for masks. What are some of the the broad trends that you've seen, and what is the number? What do the numbers tell us? Well, I think the most interesting finding. There's many, many interesting findings, but I'll just give you a headline finding that people can relate to. Uh, the first thing is we asked people, which countries do you believe we're going to have the most positive influence on the world over the next period of time? Uh, when Donald Trump was elected, the United States numbers dropped by 14 points. Under Joe Biden, they've almost completely replaced that and come back to where they, where they were previously. So uh, the United States reputation has definitely changed uh, around the world as a result of making a change in leaders. Uh, China, however, due to the pandemic, we saw a big crash of their numbers uh, two years ago when this all started they have not come back. So that idea that you know China is really challenging the United States in terms of global reputation, at the moment that's not the case. However, in developing countries, countries with less, I would say, stable democracies, China's reputation hasn't declined as much. So there's still this competition between the United States and China when it comes to reputation in a wide number of, of developing countries. Um, is there a, uh, you know, you, you, you mentioned um, you know, democracy being an issue. Obviously, the, the core of this conference is to try to bring democracies together for, you know, security, peace and stability. Um, there are big questions about U.S. democracy, obviously, in the wake of January 6th, continuing uh, misinformation surrounding the security of elections. I mean, indeed, people in Virginia, you know, more uh, Trump supporters voted for Glenn Youngkin than they did for Donald Trump, convinced that the election had been stolen and so they had to come out. And indeed, it, it helped a candidate that behind the scenes was working exceptionally closely with President Trump and his team. What, what are these numbers tell us? Because if you talk to Brits, they're alarmed at Boris Johnson and, and the government's uh, attitude toward uh, norms. What, are the, what does this data tell us at a time when there's a lot of concern that democracies may be tilting uh, toward something less than the democracies they were? Right, so we didn't really ask people about their view of domestic politics in various countries and, and what we're seeing from these results is there's a real disconnect between what people see maybe in the day-to-day -day news about what's going on in the United States and its domestic politics in the role they think that the United States plays in global affairs. And we can see that just simply changing the president, regardless of what's happening in the domestic circumstances, has led to a very large improvement in over 10 points in terms of the United States' reputation as a positive player in the world. 
So yes, we've got all these problems with democracy in various countries, but when it comes to the United States' place as a global player, it definitely improved with the change in, change in administration. And um, you know, there is a, you know the Biden administration has come under a lot of criticism, right? Not being as forceful as, as it should be on on Hong Kong. Although you know there are those who would say that that's a little bit of a fait accompli, and certainly the performance and the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Did either or any of these other factors affect you know sort of that Biden score from your standpoint? No, I think it, it, it basically bounced back to what we saw under Obama. So I think the details don't matter as much as what people are, are, are getting out of the, uh, the, the intention, what they see as the intention, and just the mood and tone coming out of the United States. Uh, just the changing of Donald Trump to Joe Biden, regardless of what Joe Biden is doing as a domestic player, and even as an international player, just changing that player led to a 12-point improvement in what people think of the United States. Uh, and you have, uh, and last question, you have an eye for seeing very interesting little details that might not be headlined but are always indicative. Is there anything else you saw in these numbers that you thought, like, hmm, that's interesting? Yeah, global threats. Um, so until over the last two years we saw pandemics right at the top of the list in terms of what people care about as one would expect but over the space of the last couple of months what we'll be seeing is that public concern about the pandemic is starting to decline and we're starting to see other important issues really emerge what are people most worried about in terms of the security threats out there today hacking cybersecurity and you can understand that people are worried about their um, you know their own banking information, they're worried about uh, uh, some of the things maybe they've been seeing about some of the, the, the hijacking that's been taking place relative to uh, you know computer systems and that kind of thing. So they're very concerned about hacking. And then the other thing on top of that uh, is that they think it's one of the threats facing the world that their governments are least prepared to deal with, least capable of dealing with. So they, they find this quite scary. So I expect as we see the pandemic move away, we're going to start to see this issue start to reemerge and real questions being asked of the security establishment about what they're doing to deal with hacking. Darrell, always an honor and pleasure, especially seeing you in person. Thanks so very much and look forward to having you back on again and ideally seeing you again in person soon. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, Vago. Thanks to everybody for joining us. Hope you all have a very, very happy Thanksgiving and a couple of days off with family and friends after what has been a very, very trying couple of years. We will be resuming our coverage on Sunday with our business roundtable. In the meantime, have a very happy Thanksgiving and a great weekend.